And I've been living that way ever since then. Part of all that is it, it making those healthy choices enables me to continue to do all these long distance hikes and cycling trips. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'm 75 now. I'm not sure I'd be able to do that. Hey folks, this is your host Mason. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today's episode is uh, Alan Carpenter. Alan started his long distance career, long distance adventures that is, at the age of 62. And you might say that, you know, that's a, that's, that's a lot older than a lot of our, our other guests. And the reason that's so cool is because may, maybe you haven't started your long distance career yet. You haven't done some of the journeys that you've been wanting to do. Alan's here to tell you, you still got time. You still have the ability to do them later in life if you take care of yourself, but try to do them when you can. You know, if you have the opportunity right out of college or during college, like I did, take those opportunities. Alan didn't have the mindset then or quite the opportunities, but he took full advantage of it when he got into his 60s. He has been able to do 20,000, over 20,000 miles since that age. Uh, He's now 75, so pretty much in the last decade, he's done 20,000 miles of human travel on foot and on bike. That has been the Colorado Trail twice, the John Muir Trail twice, the Pacific Crest Trail, all but five miles of the Appalachian Trail. He still has five miles to do. And half of the Continental Divide Trail. He has also biked across the U.S. three different times, literally all in his 60s and 70s. I love these stories. I love talking to folks like Alan. Um, But you would think that this is just, you know, because he has had the opportunity since retirement. But it was not the case. Alan had a near-death experience on his first attempt at the Pacific Crest Trail. And he says that that is what changed his life. So we're going to hear that story. And if you'd like to learn more about Alan and that story and more about him and his mindset, what he does, go to alantcarpenter.com or longdistanceadventures.com uh, where you can find out more. And, and feel free to reach out to Alan if you need a mentor. I share later in the episode that I had mentors uh, that, that helped me get ready for my first big adventures. So, um, And they were older too, and I was very young. So if you're young out there, you need someone to help you coach coach you through adventures and just give you some pointers, feel free to reach out to Alan. He, he makes that uh, offering towards the end of the episode. So Without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome him. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing swell. It's awesome. Where are you coming from today? Uh, Boulder, Colorado. We got 10 inches of snow last night. And uh, my wife and I, uh, Betsy and I, were out shoveling snow. So we walk outside and start shoveling on our driveway. Then we realized that our neighbor, Joe, down the street, had already shoveled our sidewalk. Wasn't that grand? And he'd also shoveled our adjacent neighbor's sidewalks, too, in addition to his own. So he shoveled four sidewalks before we got out at 8 a.m. Sounds like a great neighbor. He is a great neighbor. Yes, that's wonderful. So... One of the nice things about where we live, it's like we live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood <laughs> in that the neighbors are so nice and wonderful and we care for each other and we say hi and help each other out. It's just super. Has that area always been like that or in how long have you been there? Uh, this is 33 years for us. So before that, I can't say, but 
that's the way it's been ever since we've been here, as I remember at least. 33 years, Boulder, Colorado. That's obviously a, a really desirable place now. Um, what originally drew you there and what has kept you there? Yes. Uh, it turns out my wife and I were living in Fort Collins, Colorado, about an hour's drive north of Boulder. So I was uh, working on a job at Colorado State University and she was doing consulting work. And she ended up getting a job with the Nature Conservancy in Boulder. It was right down her alley. And uh, when we, uh, she and I drove down for the interview, and I kind of asked myself along and told the state director of the Nature Conservancy program, well, you know, you ought to hire Betsy and you ought to hire me too. <laughs> and it turns out that that's what happened. <laughs> so we both got jobs in Boulder. And it turns out that when um, Betsy went down for interview, she was pregnant with our daughter, something we um, uh, didn't remember to mention in the interview. <laughs> so we tried to commute for a while, but, oh, that was just uh, an hour each way. It just didn't work. So we decided we loved Fort Collins, but we moved to Boulder. And because we thought if we lived kind of near downtown, we could ride our bikes or walk to pretty much everywhere we wanted to go. And that's, in fact, what happened. We have one car and we get on our bikes and walk a lot. In fact, I've had people ask me if I own a car, which I think is high praise. So we, we just love it here. We've got wonderful neighbors and uh, Boulder's grown a lot. There's a lot more traffic than what it used to be. But when you're on a bike or walking, the traffic really isn't much of an issue. It, it would seem like it might be, but it, at least for us, it isn't. If you've got a good bike lane, you know, you got it all to yourself. There are lots of bike lanes in Boulder. That's a one, and, and also dedicated bike paths that the cars can't go on. And we use them every day, basically. So it's, it works just great for us. We have, we live in a, a very modest, small house. You don't get much house for your money in Boulder, but we like it. It's great for us. Boulder is a great place. You mentioned the Nature Conservancy being there and working there, but Boulder is an awesome place to experience the outdoors. Were you the type of people, you know, obviously working for the Nature Conservancy, you're outdoors, you're or, or naturalist to a degree, but were you getting out in the mountains during this time? Were you taking your kids out there once you divulged that information and had children? Uh, <laughs> was yes. that the lifestyle that you were living? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it turned out that when I was seven years old, um, I spent the summer in Boulder with my mom, my grandmother, and my two younger brothers. When my mom went uh, back to finish her undergrad degree, it was interrupted by World War II. This was some years ago. <laughs> And uh, we lived up near this place called Chautauqua in Boulder. We rented a house. And basically, my mom went to school during the day, and my grandma said after breakfast, come back for lunch. And then after lunch, she said, come back for dinner. We had the run of the place, of the neighborhood. It was just wonderful. So I had a very sweet spot in my heart for Boulder ever since I was a lad. So the opportunity to come live in Boulder was easy to decide, oh, yes, that would be great. You have logged more than 21,000 miles of long-distance hiking and cycling adventures since the age of 65, not up to the age of 65, but since. Is that new in the last decade for you, or were you doing things as well before 65 that, uh, that built up to that, or was it just you know sticking to very, very small adventures? 
Well, um, I went backpacking for the first time. I think I was probably 14 when I went out to the Philmont Boy Scout Ranch in northern New Mexico. Uh, this was back. This was 1960, I think. So, <laughs> 61 years ago. Wow. So using primitive equipment. Primitive was overstating the quality of the equipment that we used. World War II surplus. Uh, pack frames made out of plywood and canvas. There was no such thing as a back pack sack. So we used these things called Duluth packs, which uh, canoers would use. Just a big old sack that we'd lash under on our pack frame. Big, huge leather boots, the whole nine yards. But it was interesting that I got interested in the being outdoors, but I really didn't get interested in hiking in a big way until I was teaching high school in, um, where was I teaching? in Monona, Wisconsin, and I took a summer off and went out west and did a lot of hiking, but that was mostly short stuff, and I I didn't, (coughs) excuse me, take a really long hike until the mid-80s, maybe a, a week, that sort of thing, and I don't know why it just never dawned on me to do to do a really long distance trail. I must have heard about the John Muir Trail, for example. I'm I, I'm sure I heard about the Appalachian Trail, probably the Pacific Crest Trail, but for reasons I don't understand, it just never uh, caught my imagination to think, wow, I could do that. I'll go do it. And it, it didn't really I didn't really get hooked on this long distance adventure stuff until I think I was 62. When I was at home one night here in Boulder, in my office, uh, searching the web, and I ran across this website for the John Muir Trail, which I had heard about. And this guy who hiked the trail the previous year put these just stunning photographs up on his website. And as I looked at that, my eyes got bigger and bigger, and I just got so excited. And I think, yes, I'm going to hike the entire John Muir Trail next summer without having the faintest idea how I was going to hike 218 miles through this year. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was a, I didn't realize it at the time, but what I have come to realize since then is if the why is big enough, the how will take care of itself. My why was so huge. Those pictures were so great. I was going to do that, period, the end. I didn't know how, but hey, that's just a minor little problem. <laughs> I'll figure it out. <laughs> so the why for you was I want to see I want to see where these pictures were taken. I want to see this with my own eyes. Yes, and and experience it. Just the physicality of the hiking and the up and down of the passes and camping out in the lakes and uh, the other people along the trail that I'd meet, all that stuff. Oh, it was just totally I was hooked. And this in spite of the fact that when my wife and son and I started hiking at John Muir Trail, I had looked for lightweight gear, but I couldn't find any. Uh, I Under lightweight gear, I'd find stuff like seven-pound packs, backpacks. Like, wait a minute, this is not lightweight gear, but I couldn't find it. So we started, Betsy and I started with our uh, external frame packs. She with her Kelty Tioga Freighter pack. That must have weighed about seven pounds. The leather boots, all, all the heavy stuff. We had no idea what we were doing, but that didn't really matter because we were so excited about all this stuff. And at the end of the hike, I think because my boots didn't give me enough arch support, as I descended from Mount Whitney down to the trailhead, I 
the plantar fasciitis that had started on the trail that I, I didn't know what that was. It got so severe, I barely, barely made it to the trailhead. I just limped to the trailhead and collapsed. But when I got home, something really interesting happened that I don't know happened before in my life. The, the visceral pain memory went away. I mean, I knew my foot hurt. It was killing me. But I went to the doctor and got an insert. And then by about, I don't know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the plantar fasciitis went away. I knew it had happened, but it didn't have any emotional grab on me. But those pictures in my mind of the scenery and the lakes and all that on the John Muir Trail got bigger. They got brighter and clearer and sharper. And I decided in another moment of irrational exuberance, I'm hiking the entire Pacific Crest Trail in one go. Because it turned out that about 175 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail coincide with the John Muir Trail. And we talked to people who knew about the Pacific Crest Trail. Boy, it sounded so cool. I was going to do it, period, the end. What did your family think of these new ideas? <laughs> uh, our kids who are grown now, I think they thought it was kind of cool that Pops wanted to do this, particularly since he wasn't all that young anymore. And my wife, Betsy, bless her heart, just realized that this was such a gigantic deal for me that she said, go ahead, Alan. I know it's a big deal for you. I'll um, look after the kids and take care of stuff at home. You just go do that and enjoy yourself. And what a gift that was and still is to me. I just cannot thank her enough for her generosity. Wow. So the John Muir Trail is awesome course you know pacific crest trail quite a jump uh in the time <laughs> commitment and the experience you know you, you said you barely made it to the end uh of the john muir trail what did you do to change and then also how long did it end up taking you well the john <clears throat> muir trail took me 22 days <clears throat> and that number similarly came from reading the wank guidebook where i as i recall the author said well it take people hike about 12 miles a day on the john muir trail so divide that into 218, it's a 22 plus a day off, I think. I mean, I didn't know. I had no idea how well, how far I could hike. So when I actually got out there on the trail with my heavy gear, I ran into some people at Red's Meadow. There's that wonderful uh, campground there, a Forest Service campground with a uh, what geothermal shower. Really cool. Wow. Anyway, they had, they had this tent, a single wall tent that weighed about two pounds, and there were three guys that were inside this tent. And I, I asked them, well, what, what, where'd you get that tent? Who makes it? I've never heard of this thing before. And they said, well, this guy named Henry Shires has this business called Tarp Tent in California. And he makes these tents. I, I'd never heard of them before. So when I got home, I called up Tarp Tent. I actually talked to Henry Shires on the phone. and I got one of these lightweight tents. And... And the, I realized there's this lightweight stuff out there. This was back in 2008 and nine, And I started to find that just by talking to people, just word of mouth. So I ended up with lighter weight gear by the time I ended up starting on the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, plus, I also hiked the Colorado Trail twice. And that really helped me build up my confidence and test the gear to make sure it worked properly and to understand what my physical capabilities were. 
So by the time I started the Pacific Crest Trail, I was pretty clear that I knew what I was doing. Not totally, of course, but I was, I felt when I started uh, northbound from the Mexican border, I felt like I could do the whole thing. Uh, sure, that's going to be hard, but I, I'm pretty sure I can do it. I thought I could average 20 miles a day. So you divide 20 into 2,660 and what, that's 130 or something like that. Um, so I, I didn't really know, but uh, so when I, I got going, I, I took it a little bit easy at first. I thought that would be a sensible thing to do. And um, for the first, for that year, this is 2013 now, I ended up averaging about 18 and a half miles a day. Not as much as I thought I would, but yeah, that was okay. It was fine. And I had the physical capability and the sort of mental confidence that I could do this uh, until I made a really stupid decision to cross a stretch of icy trail up in um, the McCulmy Wilderness, uh, shy of South Lake Tahoe, about 30 miles. What happened? Well, as as I'm sure you know, uh, it's really tough for long-distance hikers to carry enough food to compensate for the 5,000 calories we burn up every day. Yeah. So pretty much if you're in the, a group of long-distance hikers, the main topic of conversation is food. <laughs> <laughs> What, what are you going to eat now? What are you going to eat uh, for dinner? And, and then what are you going to eat when you get in town? Oh, man, that's the big deal. So when I arrived at this stretch of icy trail, just like many other long-distance hikers, I had this just ravenous hunger. And, and it just gnawed at me all the time. And as I stood there looking at that icy trail, I, I took a step forward on the ice. It was smooth and hard. And it was right on the edge of a steep mountainside and downhill from the trail was this really steep icy gully that ran about 100 feet down into a boulder field. And I thought, well, if I slip, I'm going to hurtle about 100 feet down that gully and probably slam into a boulder. So I stepped back on the rocky trail. And as I'm contemplating what to do, my insatiable hunger hijacked my conscious mind and the prospect of stuffing my face at the Harris Casino, the all-you-can-eat buffet in South Lake Tahoe, just 30 miles up the trail now, pulled me forward like a zombie. I took a step and another step and I slipped and I rocketed 100 feet down that icy gully and slammed into a boulder. I think it, that's probably the stupidest thing I've ever, I've ever done in my life. What happened? I mean, in the sense of were you okay? Were you able to recover? Well, I did, uh, well, when I regained consciousness, I realized you lost consciousness. Oh yeah, I, I, oh, yeah. Word. I I hit on my right side of my chest, and uh, when I regained consciousness, I realized I'm not dead. I was really happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want, didn't want to be dead, but I was really um, what's the word? I was in shock, and I was just uh, kind of disoriented, and it just I, everything hurt except my head. Uh, it just my chest was killing me, my arms and feet and legs, and I scraped a lot of the uh, skin off of my forearms and legs and chins and knees because of sliding down on the ice. 
I had this big hole in my leg and the blood was just running down my leg. So I decided, well, I'm not going to die here. So what am I going to do? You know, I realized I got to get the blood flow stopped. And then I got to crawl out of the icy gully, get on the <clears throat> rocky mountainside next to the gully and crawl back up to the trail. <clears throat> because if I could do that, at some point, somebody would show up and they could get help. And so it turned out uh, when I was on the trail, I, I found this piece of old bandana and I stuck it in my pocket. So I realized, oh, I'll stuff that in the hole in my leg. So I got out and stuffed it in there and the blood flow stopped in a couple of minutes. Somehow, I don't know how this happened, actually. I managed to crawl up that steep, uh, volcanic, rotten rock, all full of little stones. It was just, just so painful to do that because everything I did, I had to push my arms and knees into the hillside the mountainside so i wouldn't slip <clears throat> back down the hill or tip over backwards and man it hurt but i i did it i i don't know how i did it but i did and eventually i hauled my just aching body up on the trail and collapsed and then somehow uh, just a whole bunch of events conspired such that for the first time in a week i had a cell phone signal and it turned out that when i ran into the boulder on my right side my phone was in my left side breast pocket and i pulled it out it, it was undamaged somehow i had just a little bit of juice and i got two bars of service and i was just so excited all that i dialed 911 and and this woman answers the phone and about 45 minutes later, Matt and Joe from the California Highway Patrol somehow managed to uh, lower their helicopter down and pluck me from that steep mountainside and take me to the renowned medical center in Reno, Nevada, where I spent five days being patched up for fractured ribs and partially collapsed lung and the usual cuts and scrapes and bruises. I was so lucky. I just couldn't imagine how I survived that experience. But I did. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. You know, on this show, we talk a lot about the adventure, but it's honestly the time between the adventure that is most important, being adventure ready, as we say. And the most important aspect of that is knowing your body and knowing what's going on inside your body. And the most important company that can help you do that is Inside Tracker, literally tracking what's going on inside your body. Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data and provides you with a clear picture of what exactly is going on so that you can make changes to your diet or see what's working, what isn't. And how they do it is they analyze all the data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to help you optimize your body and know what's really going on. So if you'd like to learn more or get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store, go to InsideTracker.com dot com slash adventure sports that is inside tracker.com slash adventure sports inside tracker can get you ready and keep you ready for all your favorite adventure sports that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode so when i when it turns out my wife came out to fetch me because they wouldn't let me fly home because of my lung problems 
So she drove me home and I sat on the couch for, I guess, a week, something like that, and just whined and complained and felt sorry for myself. <laughs> it's embarrassing to say that, but it's true. Uh, then finally, for some reason, it dawned on me that that was really kind of stupid. That wasn't really helping me. And and somehow I decided I'm going to find the good in my situation. And I realized I had taken my life for granted. Okay, so now what do I do? Well, I decided I was going to get back on the Pacific Crest Trail the following year. The doctor said, Alan, you got to take at least two months off to let your ribs and lung heal. So I said, okay, I'll do, go back the next year. And what do I do to, to regain my physical health and just be a really healthy person? And I wasn't sure how to do that, but that's, in fact, what I did for that next year and for several years thereafter, reading books and science articles and all that. And the, the really good part of that accident that I had was it motivated me to really take much better care of myself. And I ended up getting so excited about what I learned, I wrote a book about it called Nine Healthy Choices That Nurture Body, Mind, and Spirit. And I've been living that way ever since then. And part of all that is it, it making those healthy choices enables me to continue to do all these long distance hikes and cycling trips. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'm 75 now. I'm not sure I'd be able to do that. Let, let me ask you this. You're, you're on the Pacific Crest Trail and you have this accident about halfway through. Why did you think you were taking your life for granted? You seem to be at that point, someone who's living life, living to the fullest. You know, you're out on a huge adventure. What were you taking for granted? I think the fact that I'd be able to do everything I wanted to do for as long as I was alive. And that accident showed me in some situations, the, the distance between living and dying is not very great. It's just right there on the knife edge. I could have easily, so easily been killed. Had I hit my head, that would have been it. Or one of my ribs could have punctured uh, a vein. I could have bled to death internally. But I didn't. Or potentially getting injured to the point where you can't do this stuff anymore. That's right, yes. I, I, again, part of being so lucky, I, I really had no serious joint injuries. I mean, I could have totally messed up my ankles or knees or hip or elbow or wrist or something but i didn't and it's just i don't i when i when i the next year when i got back on the trail i came to that spot where i fell in 2013 and as i looked down that what was an icy gully but wasn't the subsequent year i thought there's it's steeper than i remember and there's no way i survived that trip down that gully and the collision with the boulder, but I did. And there's no way, as hurt as I was, I was able to crawl back up that nasty, rocky mountainside to get back to the trail. But I did. And I, I realized that I and everybody else in the world has this deep well of inner strength. And most of the time, though, we don't either, we either don't know it exists or we don't use it at all. But I used it, that's something I didn't know I had. And that really showed me that, wow, there's all this stuff down inside me that I didn't know existed. 
And when I got back and got patched up back in Boulder, I, I talked to other people that had serious injuries and illnesses, and it was the same story. People like getting just like this one guy got thrown off a horse into a steel post and just smashed his skull. And uh, it was awful for a while. Then he decided, I'm going to find the good in my situation. And he did. And having his head smashed into that post was one of the best things that ever happened because he changed his life totally after that. Uh, we, we had a young climber on a few years ago who shattered her back at 19 years old. She, and I, I actually don't know if it was an injury. It might've been some, some, something medical, but she said one of her um, mentors told her that there will come a point in your life where you're thankful this happened. Yeah. Would, would you say that you're there with your accident in 2013? Absolutely. That accident was one of the best things that ever happened to me. <laughs> That's absolutely crazy. For me, I think I have a thick skull. My wife Thankfully. and my mom would certainly own up to that. And I think sometimes I it just takes me being whacked over the head with a two-by-four to get my attention. <laughs> and and that accident got my attention. And, and not just the, the pain of it all, but just... The realization that I was so lucky to survive, I, I don't know how that happened, but I did. And I felt so grateful afterwards that I survived and that I'm still able to do all this hiking and cycling stuff. Like, what a deal. What was some of the immediate changes that you made in your life after that? Like you talk about it just woke you up. It mm -hmm. taught you to not take things for granted. What have been some of the things that have changed, the big, the big ones? I think I realized that getting enough sleep is really a big deal based upon what I read. You know, of course, like most everybody else, if you ask 100 people somewhere, is it a good idea to get enough sleep each night? About 99 of them would say, well, of course it is. But they don't really appreciate how important it is and the serious downsides of not getting enough sleep. So as a part of my recovery, uh, after my accident, I decided I'm going to stop watching late night TV. Uh, I can't remember who was on, if that was Jay Leno time or whatever it was. But I stopped watching late night TV so I could get more sleep. And I think that's been very helpful to me. Wow. You're, you're hitting I, me right right upside the head with a two by four because <laughs> I stay you know I, I I'm when I get done with working at I, I do work a lot at night because I have two young kids a baby and a, a toddler and I'll answer emails till just last night probably 11 30 12 o'clock and then I'll stay up another hour watching YouTube and I know it's bad I didn't do it <laughs> two nights ago and got that extra hour hour and a half of sleep and it was awesome but I, I didn't do it last night, but it's great timing. That I did not expect you to say that, by the way. That's really cool. But anyway, go, go ahead. Well, that there were other things, too, that were not so much new information, but just reinforced what I already thought. Like, for example, the primacy of getting enough physical activity, what I call keep moving. It's just gigantic. We humans evolved to move. 
And if we don't move, it, our body interprets that as a signal of, well, maybe Alan's uh, going to kick the bucket here in the near future. So it, I just, it was one of those things that I, I thought, yeah, getting enough exercise or whatever kind of physical activity is a good thing. Well, it's actually essential, especially for people who want to get out in the world and go hiking or cycling or do whatever they want to do. You you got to keep the physical plant in decent shape. And another part of that, which uh, I came to appreciate is much more important than I thought, is what you, what we eat. What I call eat better. And it wasn't that I was eating, uh, you know, a steady diet of Twinkies and Ding Dongs and that sort of stuff. But I really wasn't eating as well as I could have. And now my wife and I eat far better than we did before the accident. That's Those are just three things that I have done that have, I think, made a huge difference in keeping my body going so I can continue to do all these great things. And, you know, at that age, by 2013, you were, you know, what, in your late 60s? Six, six, 67, I think. 67. Yeah. By, by that point of your life, most people, when I, like, look at that time in my life, uh, you know, coming up, my thoughts are, oh, whatever, I, whoever I am is just set in place at that point. The concrete has dried. There's no more ability to move things around. But you're here to tell us that that is absolutely not the case. I like that. The concrete has dried. I like a blog post might be the concrete has not dried. One of the things I learned is that our brains are highly malleable and they're rather like our skeletal muscles. And we all know what happens when we don't use our skeletal muscles. They atrophy. And actually, as we get older, our muscle cells die. Yikes, that's not good. And our brain is similar in that if we don't use our brain in certain ways, these neural connections between these nerve cells go away. And that's generally not a good thing as we're getting older. Because we, what we, our brain needs is lots of um, various, uh, ways to get from point A to point B, as it were, redundancy. And I've learned that if we keep our minds active, uh, not active in the sense of uh, watching television in a sort of passive kind of way, but active from the standpoint of uh, reading and thinking about this, that, and the other, and doing mind-body activities, like yoga would be another good one, tai chi. If we keep our minds active, we're going to be able to live a lot better when we get older. It, it's just gigantic. And we're not set in stone. And it doesn't matter how old we are. One of the one of my favorite studies involved a bunch of uh, 90-year-olds who were living in a nursing home. And this uh, researcher recruited them for a weight training class. Now, these are 90-year-olds, some of whom had to use walkers and canes to get to the exercise class. And over the course of this time in this exercise class, these 90-year-olds got noticeably stronger. And I bet many of them initially would have said, no, that can't happen. I'm too old. I can't do this. But they did. Because I think we so often underestimate our abilities to do things, especially as we get older and we kind of get set in our ways. Well, I'm not 65 anymore. I can't do that. Well, maybe, but maybe not. 
you know, 21,000 miles covered in the last 10 years. Are, are, would you say these would have been things you would tackle earlier if you would have known about them or if you would have, um, just had that desire or did you have to be that age? Like, cause I know there's a lot of people saying, well, that's great. You know, you're probably retired at that point. I'll take care of myself between now and then. But what, what would you have changed? What would you have wished you'd have done sooner? Not, not re- in a regretful way, but just what do you think yeah. you could have done if this mindset would have came to you earlier in life? Uh, maybe when I graduated from college, I would have uh, done one of these long trails or bike trips or something. It never dawned on me, of course. This was back in 1968. I don't think I ever met anybody who did anything like that. I don't think they, I knew they even existed. So, but uh, really to get more to the meat of your question, after I hiked the John Muir Trail, then I realized, oh, this is so cool. I want to do more of this. I want to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. But uh, my work was as an ecological consultant. So most of my work is outside, plus inside work, writing reports and that sort of thing. So I need to be available to work basically April through September. Well, that's hiking season, at least in the northern hemisphere. And I didn't want to quit my job because I wasn't sure if that was going to work financially. So I thought, well, hmm, what am I going to do? Uh, And my lovely wife, Bessie, suggested, well, why don't you hike the Colorado Trail? This was after I hiked the John Muir Trail. And initially, I thought, well, the Colorado Trail, why would I do that? It's here in Colorado. She then convinced me, Alan, you're you're being short-sighted here. It's easy to get to. It runs through the mountains. Go do it, and you'll have a good time. Well, finally, I wised up and took her advice and hiked the trail, and it was great. So so it was kind of, here's what I could do given, given my circumstances. So I did that. And then the following year, uh, after I sort of figured out the, the gear stuff, I thought, well, I'm going to hike the John Muir Trail again, which I did. Uh, this time, instead of it taking 22 days, it took 11 days because I hiked 20 miles a day. So I could keep moving toward my goal of hiking the entire Pacific Crest Trail. But just in given what I conceive to be the realities of our home life and financial situation and all. I thought, yeah, I'll just put that off for a little bit. And that was fine. In retrospect, if somebody handed me a million bucks when I was age 50 and said, you can't give it away, you have to invest it, and only you can get the proceeds of that investment, well, maybe I would have retired then. I don't know. But that hasn't, that didn't happen. (laughs) But say this mindset hits you you had an accident at 30 or 25, even yeah. or 40, 50, whatever that was, you would have been able to put that in action earlier with, with things that are more doable. Maybe it is the Colorado trail or maybe in the throes yeah, of yeah. child rearing, it's weekend trips, it's something, but you could have started this journey earlier. And say, I, yeah. I just want to give hope to people out there that might not be in a place to be able to do that just yet. But yes, knowing right. that even at that age, 65, you can get 20,000 miles plus from 65 to 75. And, and how breakneck was that of a pace for you? Or what, or did it feel really achievable, really doable? Oh, well, that wasn't my goal when I set out, but it just kind of happened in a way um, because I, I just um, I just got so excited about this stuff. And, and it 
and after a while, I, I thought, after I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, when I finished it in 2014, I thought, this was so cool. Hmm. I wonder if I could hike the Appalachian Trail. Huh. And if I did that, could I hike the Continental Divide Trail? Be a triple crown hiker. And that that was so far out, I thought back then, well, hmm, I'll just sort of ponder that for a while. I didn't put it as a, an official goal in my life, but I kept thinking about that. And and that's my goal now for the past several years. That's I'm gonna, Hopefully I can finish that this summer. Because you have well. finished the, the PCT and the Appalachian Trail, but you have about half the Continental Divide Trail left? Well, actually, I've got five miles of the Appalachian Trail to do. <laughs> okay, five miles. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I'm going to do that in May. And then about, I don't know, 1,300 miles of the of the CDT to finish. But, uh, but again, it, I, I think people who get excited about this, they'll find ways to keep doing this. You know, if, if you don't want to, if you don't have the wherewithal to hike the entire Pacific Coast Trail, We'll pick out a part, maybe 500 miles or 200 miles or something, and go hike that. In, in fact, when on my first John Muir Trail hike, I ran into this older guy. He must have been in his 70s. He was the only other person we saw with an external frame pack. He was uh, section hiking the John Muir Trail. And this was his last bit of the John Muir Trail. So he was getting it done. And if the the why is big enough you'll be able to figure out how to do it absolutely you'll you'll be able to figure out something to take care of the house the yard um someone to look after the kids if need be maybe grandma or grandpa could come help with that or something something to be able to do that so the long distance hiking at that age, I can imagine you. You talk about some foot problems or just some 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 of the dealing with carrying the weight. When did you switch over, or at least uh, start trying bike touring? That's my sport of choice, uh, mm-hmm. where you can you know you don't have to drill holes into your toothbrush. You can carry an entire jar of peanut butter <laughs> on the bike and enjoy the downhills too. That's another big benefit. When did you start yes. doing that, and how did you enjoy that? Well, that started. Uh, gosh, this must have been over. 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, when a, when a guy that used to work for me, a guy named Steve Perth, suggested a book called The Pacific Coast Bike Route, a bicycle trip from um, Vancouver, Canada, down to the Mexican border along the Pacific Coast. So he thought I would like that. So I got the book and, and I read it and I um, thought, this is cool. But then I started thinking about, OK, the logistics of all this. Like, so uh, how do we get out to the, the West and uh, what do we do about bikes and what do we do about equipment? And I didn't know anything. And so it, that took a while to gestate. And then about, let's see, this must have been about 2012. Uh, it turned out that our daughter turned 21 and she, we could rent a car through Costco that she could legally drive. And so we decided as a family, she, our daughter would be the sag wagon driver. Our son, who has been about 15 then, and my wife, Betsy, and I would be the riders. So we flew to Portland, and then we rented a car and went down to Cannon Beach, rented three bikes at Mike's Bike Shop, 
and bike down the Oregon coast to California. We had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea how long it would take or how many miles per day we could do and or kind of anything. But it's one of those deals, you know, you figure it out and it worked great and I was hooked. So so I thought, well, this is cool. Now what? And then it turned out that um, when I hiked the, uh, the uh, Colorado Trail the second time in 2011, I tore my uh, right peroneus brevis tendon in my right foot. And that's not a good thing to do if you're going to be hiking. And uh, so I, I couldn't start the Pacific Crest Trail the next year like I hoped. And so I decided I'm going to ride my bike down the whole length of Washington, Oregon, and California. And I did along that Pacific Coast route. And that was just way, way cool. It was just wonderful. And by that time, I sort of figured out kind of how to do this stuff. It was just wonderful. I would, I highly recommend that. If somebody's interested in long distance cycling, if you're somewhat more adventuresome, get the adventure cycling maps and do that. Get the book and read it. And if you're a little not quite there, then just do the Oregon Coast uh, portion of that trip. It is just wonderful. You'll love it. You, you, you can cover a few more miles too. Um, yes. Yes. I, I think. Well, I, again, when we started this long-distance cycling, we, we didn't know how long we could go in a day. But right now, the the my number in my head is about 70 miles. Right. That's great. 70 and miles. That, yeah. And, you know, just one of the things I learned from my long-distance hiking is basically I use all my hiking gear on the bike. Not including the bike, obviously, but a tent, sleeping bag, uh, clothing, all that kind of stuff is just right out of the hiking drawer yeah and it's not on your back no it's not and and it's a lot easier to go lighter than it is heavier that's been my experience although i have seen so many bikes bikers man they got front panniers back panniers they got stuff you know in the middle and stuff on the handlebars and i i don't know i I don't think you really need all that stuff to have a nice time and to be safe and comfortable. But hey, if you want to do that, that's up to you. Bring bring everything in the kitchen sink. So, <laughs> so how do you think? You know, say say this mindset hits you earlier in life. How do you think your adventures would differ if you would have done them years before? Yeah, maybe your well, mindset. Maybe you know, obviously timing might not be as easy, but just some of maybe the uh, yeah, the, 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 those lessons that would be different for you. Well, yeah, here's one. Uh, when uh, my wife and I got married in 1986, we our intention was to go down to Patagonia and go hiking. Uh, and at the last minute, we chickened out because we didn't have any money and we didn't have prospects of employment after we'd get back. And now I would I'd say, yep, that may not be the smartest thing to do, but we're going to do it anyway. So that would have been a really cool deal that there there wasn't much um, activity on the part of Americans down in Patagonia then. It kind of hadn't been discovered, and that would have been the coolest darn thing to have done. Gone down there, hitch around, go hiking. And um, I think doing something like that would have then shown me, oh, well, we can do anything, basically. And I think I would have 
figured out ways to do these longer trips sooner. I don't know how that would have worked exactly, but with I, kids I think potentially. I uh, yes, actually, one of the interesting things. Well, when when our kids were little, we took them out and went hiking and backpacking and all that stuff. And then uh, there was a time that when they were teenagers, uh, you know, the parent, our my wife and I weren't such a nice, smart people anymore. We were sort of old-fashioned dodos, I think, <laughs> to our kids. <laughs> but but that uh, changed. Uh, there's this uh, wonderful expression. I think it was uh, Mark Twain said uh, it was uh, something the effect that uh, when our kids were little, uh, 18. Uh, they thought we parents were completely stupid. And now when they gotten older, the parents are a lot smarter than they used to be. <laughs> but, and now our, our kids are outdoorsy types. And so uh, it would be, it would be wonderful to go on one of these long trips with them, but you know, they're working and have lives that hasn't happened yet, but that would be really wonderful. Well, Alan, if you don't mind, before we go, I, I would love to hear a story from one of your adventures that maybe you like to tell or something that kind of encapsulates why you do these, maybe keeps you motivated to keep going out there for more stories like that. Yeah. Well, here's, how about two little, two little. Go for it. Yeah. Tell Okay. So when I was hiking the PCT in 2014, the year after I got hurt, I was up in the um, Mount Jefferson wilderness and came to a place called Russell Creek, I believe. And there were two other hikers just ahead of me that had crossed the creek in a southbounder that uh, was waiting to cross. So it wasn't very wide, maybe 20 feet and had a nice kind of sandy bottom. And, and, you know, you kind of don't go barefoot sometimes, but the people that were there that already crossed it. Oh, you just take your shoes and socks off and wait. You'll be fine. So ordinarily I put my socks in my shoes and tied my shoelaces together and hang them around my neck and then cross. But this time I thought, well, I'll just throw the shoes across. So I put my socks in them and threw them. And as soon as that, those shoes left my hand, I realized I was in trouble because the arc of the shoes, instead of being kind of a flat arc, going laterally across the stream, went almost straight up in the air. And then as I watched, as the shoes came down in the creek and immediately went over the edge of a really steep boulder field and disappeared. <laughs> and the, the expression on the three people's faces who were there was just priceless. As in, I can't believe what I just saw. That nitwit Allen just threw his shoes in his the creek and they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> no chance of recovery. None. Oh no. my gosh. So I'm standing there, I have no camp shoes. And I'm thinking, okay, so I crossed the creek and I thought, well, what, what do I do? And I said, well, I'll just see how far I can walk. So I started walking and I made it about 10 feet before the little pebbles in the creek or in the uh, trail just were hurting my feet so much. I couldn't go any further. So I asked, um, one of the hikers, Miss Frizzle was her name, uh, who was a northbounder. If she or her boyfriend Showtime, I think was his name. If they had camp shoes I could use. 
And he didn't, but she had some size eight Crocs knockoffs. And she said, sure, you can use these. I have size 12 feet. And I could I could fit the front end of my foot in the shoe, but that was about it. So I thought, well, okay, I'll try it. So she gave me her shoes. She and Showtime left. And I just kind of shuffled up the trail <laughs> for about 100 feet. And I, no, this isn't going to work. So then I had some duct tape. And I duct taped my foot to each shoe. And I shuffled up some more. The duct tape ripped and came off. That didn't work. So I, I kept shuffling along. And I came to these two guys sitting by the trail. And I asked them if they had some line. And they said, sure. So they gave it to me. And I lashed my foot into the shoes and I started going up again and then the line got loose and <laughs> so I sat down and I lashed that line so tight that as I walked up the trail I realized my feet were turning white and I essentially had a, a, put a tourniquet on my foot <laughs> so I sat down by the trail and unlaced it all and I'm dejected and I'm kind of wondering what to do and these three hikers walked past and the last guy, Quinoa was his name, had a pair of these Vivo barefoot water shoes on the back. And he looked big. He said, stop, stop, stop. And I told him my sad tale. And I asked Quinoa, would you be willing to lend me your water shoes? And he said, sure, here they are. And he just left. And I put them on and they worked and I could hike in those water shoes. And then um, I was able to get down to the Olali Lake Resort, which is about 10 miles away, and get into town and order some shoes. But what was so cool about that was Quinoa gave his camp shoes to me just instantly without any reservation. Sure, here they are, without any sense of how he's going to get them back or anything. Wow. I eventually got them back to him, but th that's so much the spirit of long distance hiking, people helping each other out and just being kind to each other and generous. That was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. It was so sweet. Just an act of kindness. Yeah. Wow. So just as a, another little aspect of that is when I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, <clears throat> I kept track of uh, incidents like that, people being nice to me, doing things for me and helping me. In my 128 days on the trail, I recorded 144 separate acts of kindness by complete strangers. It, it just blew me away. That is awesome. And I am not unique in that regard. Every long distance hiker I've ever talked to sings the same song. Oh, the people are so nice. The trail angels are so wonderful. Yes, oh, people help me out. And everybody I've ever talked to says I'm a more generous and grateful person now after having hiked these long trails than I was before. And it's the same thing for me. What if we all went out and did this? And we all came back being even more generous and grateful than we were before we started. Well, the world would be very different, wouldn't it, though? That That is probably one of the biggest lessons people mention over and over again on the show is how adventure makes you see the world in a more positive light. Yes. Um, that another another 
benefit of not watching late night television, uh, I'm sure, (laughs) (laughs) is that it does the opposite. Seeing that is... It's not the exception out there. That's the rule. I, you know, I got to the point on my adventures where I had complete confidence in the people around me that if something goes wrong, if you throw your shoes into the river, there will be a solution that someone comes along with. You don't have to fret. That is, I think, that is the state of that, that, that the, the normal state of people. Yes, I, I'm. I'm sure that's true, and I've I've experienced this on my bike trips. And one one of the um, ways in which that happens is going into a convenience store to get something to drink because I'm thirsty. And so I so I've got my bike stuff on. People kind of see I'm a biker sort of person. And when I go in the store or come back out, someone will hold the door open for me and then they'll say, be careful. There's nut jobs out there. (laughs) And just people uh, being kind to me and offering advice to just be careful out there it's just so sweet and wonderful oh it's so great and and, you know that i i know we're just riffing here a little bit but that you know you mentioned the convenience tour that's my sport of choice is bike touring people always i mean they just see what you're doing they immediately put it together first questions where are you going where are you coming from what are you doing and people are so fascinated. You are the anomaly of their day. And it just makes that day so much more interesting for them. Um, and it does for you because you get to have a wonderful conversation with people. Those interactions at gas stations are the best, absolute best out there. Yeah. Yeah. But just one more little one. You'll yeah, absolutely. This. So uh, my wife, Bessie, and I uh, rode the Northern Tier trip two years ago. And we are up in northern Michigan, just south of Traverse City. So we went into a store to to get some food for the evening, and I bought a quart of chocolate milk, as is my wont to do. So I went up to the uh, checkout stand, and as I'm standing there, I open the milk, and I'm just chugging it right there in line. And the woman in front of me turns around and looks at me. (laughs) And without without comment, then when I finally put it down she says you must like chocolate milk <laughs> and i said yeah i do it's really good so then we go up to we get up to the front and she says here i'll buy your chocolate milk for you wasn't that sweet and wonderful such a small thing that makes such an impact it does yes and and it made her day and it made my day and and there and actually there was another one who heard overheard and saw all this and as uh, I went outside and was continuing to drink my chocolate milk, and she just came out and said, have fun, enjoy that chocolate milk. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Too funny. Well, I, you know, and, and I didn't know this. Your wife joins you for these. Yeah, well, she um, she is not a long-distance hiker. She doesn't like to walk 20 miles a day. Uh, but she's the biker in the family. She she waits for me, you know, Mr. Slowpoke. <laughs> And uh, that that trip across the northern tier was just wonderful. It was so great doing that together every day for what, 58 days, I think. We just had a wonderful time. I just can't give it a high enough rating. And yes, there were times which it was hard. And then when we were cold and wet and, and the bugs were eating us. But, yeah, that's was that was just little tiny stuff compared to all the wonderful experiences we had along the way. Just how... We got along just like two peas in a pod. 
Yeah. Well, you know, keep at it because uh, on that first uh, Pacific Coast Trail trip I did, the bike trip, I met a family in um, Northern California and they, and they had, I think their youngest kid was maybe two. He was in the Burley and the mom was on the tandem with a, maybe a kid who was eight, something like that. And pops was on the bike by himself. They were having a wonderful time. That, that is awesome. Ah, would love to do that. Well, Alan, it, it, where where can folks find out more about you, and where can we uh, where can we follow you? Um, I have a website. It's a l a n t carpenter dot com. So my name spelled out with my middle initial, Alan T Carpenter dot com. And I have a website more devoted to my hiking and biking stuff, and that's called Long Distance Adventures Plural dot com. So those are two ways uh, people can uh, get in touch with me. On my uh, long-distance adventures website, I have a bunch of journals on there that people can check out. And then on my alantcarpenter.com website, if people are interested in uh, my health and wellness blog posts, I put up a blog post once a week. They could uh, connect there. And then if they want to sign up for my free monthly newsletter, they can uh, just leave me a message on the contact page. And that's a front and back free. And it's the latest science about how to pursue a life of health and well-being. And if, some, if somebody wants to have a chat, you know, I, seriously, I'd be delighted to talk to anybody on the phone who's interested in getting more info about biking and hiking. So, I mean, people hear stuff like that. Seriously, I'd be delighted to do that. It, it has been so wonderful to me, and I want to share my enthusiasm and knowledge with other people. It, it and I will say, you know, if maybe you're not Alan's age if you're listening, or you're not in that stage of life. But my first adventures, I had a mentor who was probably your age, and he had d- been down this road, and I was 20, and he helped me get ready for my first big adventure, and. Without that experience or that, you know, that, uh, that reassurance, I might have not done it, at least not as well. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, just having someone who's been down that road, who's experienced it, just to give you some pointers, give you some encouragement, uh, it's invaluable. I think so. Yeah. I, you know, I've been on the receiving end uh, plenty of times myself. So I, I'm sure that's true. Well, Alan, I can't thank you enough for being on, and, and, I, and I'll keep you posted when this, uh, this comes out. Good. Well, the pleasure is mine, Mason, and I hope your listeners really enjoy this and get a kick out of it. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.